Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from German tax reforms to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's EMEA International Tax and Legal Academy in Madrid, Spain, where I'm thrilled to have Arnie Schnitger back on the podcast. Arnie is an international tax partner with PwC in Berlin and co-host of the German Todd podcast, Frisch Serviert. Frisch Serviert, you nailed My it. My German is terrible. It's getting Arnie. better. No, it's Every not. episode. <laughs> don't, don't patronize me. Which means freshly served, um, who he hosts with Christian Keisner. So, Arnie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doc, for having me. My German has not gotten any better since our last well, podcast. We can work on that. We can work we, on we that. We can work on that. Yeah. All right. I'm too busy focused on Pillar 2 to really <laughs> spend a lot of time studying German. I, I hear you. <laughs> All right. So, Arnie, a couple months back, we both had the opportunity on our respective podcast to interview Pascal Santamon, former director of the Center for Tax Policy and Administration at the OECD, who many give credit for Pillar 2's adoption. What did you take away from your interview with Pascal? <clears throat> that's a that's a great question, actually, and it's not an easy one to no. put this in one sentence. I, <laughs> I'll try to do my best. I would say my summary is things are not always as easy as they appear in the first instance, if I might say so. So Pascal, when we had him on the podcast, first we, we were really happy to, that he joined and he came. It was a huge pleasure, of course, and honor that he joined us. Just, totally just to agree. Start. Absolutely. Very nice that he's willing to do that. Absolutely. And I have to say, I was pleasantly also surprised how an open conversation we could have because I think the bottom line was that obviously the project is still an important one for him. He sees it as a big achievement, but he also acknowledged all the difficulties we're running in yeah. and also the whole political kind of tension which we're having between especially Europe and US right now mm -hmm. based on the question to what extent are your rules going to be acceptable under the different kind of uh, regimes which you see now in, in Europe basically. So I think he was quite open with that and acknowledging basically that there is something also to be solved so far. That, that was for me really, uh, I think, the key message. But there is a bunch of other things we right. talked about which were really interesting. So we really had a good time spending with him. And uh, yeah, if, if you want to read it, Doug, just listen to it, I think. Yeah, I would <laughs> encourage <laughs> listeners to check it out. The two things that I, I took away that the one would maybe get your reaction from, from Pascal was, first of all, he was very direct in, sure. in his um, comments specifically with his interactions with U.S. Treasury because I, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time talking about that process. And I mean, I, to effectively summarize, you know, what he said was like, you know, Treasury effectively wrote a check that they couldn't cash, right, because they weren't able to get the congressional support to actually implement the Build Back Better Act, which would have um, created country by country guilty, which right. I still question, and he didn't really directly answer that. Even if we would have gotten yeah. country by country guilty, given that it's a totally different tax base, would that really have been IR compliant? But right. obviously that didn't happen, and yeah. so we now have a blended regime. But it's actually a great point, because in the end, it also fleshes out one difficulty in these, let's say, international development which we're seeing right now. Because the question comes up, you want to have an agreement between different countries sitting together, trying to work on an agreement on a professional level of all these different tax authorities' representatives. And how do you get then everyone on from parliament, from the additional kind of, from all those states, right. basically? I think it actually points out a very 
fair point, which we're not going to talk about today, but it's, it's a huge topic also in Germany. How can you basically make sure that you have sufficient backing, basically, from your local parliament right. and everyone, the stakeholders? And especially if those rules get complicated right now, how can you then later on open the process? You can't, you know, because there's an agreement, basically. But how can you bridge it? I think that's going to be something very interesting to see down the road. Me too. Um, and maybe the last thing that I'll mention on, on Pascal is that I, I was, I mean, I've seen him speak a number of times. I know you have to have had the opportunity to meet him a few times, but he, just a really charming guy and um, a really good salesperson. And I, I really sure. don't believe that this could have happened without him. So he, he certainly deserves some credit um, just given, uh, you know, his personality and his ability to be able to, to charm. I think there's nothing more they can add only just to emphasize how you're right. Our, our guy who's our production guy on our podcast, basically, afterwards we kind of have a, have a follow-up. We asked how it was, and his reaction was, he's a really nice guy, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and he didn't know anything that there's this whole long discussion about BAPS, and you know everyone is basically seeing it kind of critical, we get it complicated. He just liked him as a person, to your point. Says so, a lot. That's says a, a lot. That's exactly. a great point. All right, so let's move to, to Germany's adoption of Pillar 2. Yeah. We had you back on the, we had you on the podcast you know, several months ago. But the Federal Ministry of Finance in Germany published a draft law on March 20th, 2023 to implement the Pillar 2 Directive, ensuring a global minimum tax for multinational groups and large domestic groups in the European Union, the so-called Minimum Tax Directive Implementation Act. So the publication of the German draft law follows the formal adoption by the EU Council to adopt Pillar 2 from December 15th, 2022, which we followed very closely here on the podcast. So before we dive into some of the specifics um, with respect to the, the German rules, tell our listeners a little about the legislative process in right. Germany. How does right. this work? When will we get, um, when will we actually get final rules? When will this be enacted for financial statement purposes or substantially enacted under IFRS? And then we can also talk a little bit about the timing of the administrative guidance, which certainly yeah. makes things challenging. Absolutely. So yeah, I think it's worthwhile to mention this is first a very comprehensive set of rules, as we can imagine. So we're talking about here uh, an own law, it's an own tax act. It's like you're having a new corporate income tax act, which already shows you, okay, this is obviously substantial. Uh, it has 89 uh, uh, paragraphs, so it's quite lengthy as well, as, as, as we would imagine. And uh, I'm just basically fleshing that out because of that, there is a common view that not everything is perfect. You know, there because it's such a let's say comprehensive set of rules, and it's quite complicated. On top, there is the acknowledgement things are not fully kind of drafted to perfection. So okay. far. and you know, in Germany we have this thing made in Germany, which I don't know whether it's worthwhile nowadays anything anymore. But we want to have it perfect, and everything needs to be you know ironed out. So having this I, I've out, I've worked there, with you long enough. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. So, so having this out, acknowledging that everything is worked out, is something which is not, I would say, the, the starting point for a normal legislative process. That's why it's also not an official law draft by the government so far. It's something which, uh, uh, which was put out by the Ministry of Finance to encourage basically. A review, a I thorough see. review, basically, uh, asking for input as well in order to see what's been missing, basically. So that's why it's in very, very early stage so far. So the next step would be there will be an official kind of draft law. I don't know. We don't know about the timing so far. Okay. I would still, that's my personal view, and this is just guts feeling, but I would okay. expect something still before, you know, summer break. I would expect okay. it simply because then there's summer break. And then you need to go, and that's the next step, so you need to go 
through the polymetric process, which is basically hearing impoliment. Then we have also um, the states who need to uh, improve it as well. So there's a multiple steps. I'm not going to go through everything. Sure. But basically, we have different, you know, um, uh, polyments who need to uh, actually one polymet, and we have then the states who need to basically retwist it, and then it becomes finally law when our president signs it, so to speak. So there is a. I, I obviously, we want to include this for this year. That's kind of what is the the the, the let's say, the goal. And uh, as it's such a let's say comprehensive uh, law set and we have a directive on top. I would also not expect that in the parliamentary process there's going to be obviously a pushback because we have to basically right. basically uh, do something. And as there's an earlier kind of consultation phase already right now with official law, hopefully a lot of things will be caught. As always, every day we find something new. So also sure. in the process, basically when you go through parliament, I'm still anticipating there will be details who will be basically brought out. But I would not expect, that's my personal view, a fundamental discussion around do we want to do this or not? And if it really goes to the really details, our usual kind of experiences, also the parliamentary hearing, not necessarily all the details are discussed on a widely matter with everyone from, from the parliament. Simply the people who are sitting there are not tax lawyers, obviously. So, so is it fair to, to say then that it won't be maybe the, the last quarter of this calendar year that will actually become signed you know, and, and, and enacted? I mean, we can kind yeah. of expect towards the end of the calendar year. I think so. Yeah, right. maybe even I, December. December is something I didn't want to say. It. Okay, we really don't know. We so don't know. We right. don't know simply because the parliamentary calendar is not even drafted for the second half, as far as I know. So, but I would expect it's going to be something more towards the end of the year. Okay. So for everyone who thinks about was me for fiscal statements, I think that that's something I would take as a as a guidance so far. Okay. Yeah. So we understand that it's likely that we could see at least two sets of additional administrative guidance by the OECD before the end of this year. We're recording this and. April of 2023, and so you know we'll see. We've we've had some expectations not met with the OECD. They have a, certainly a difficult task to give the administrative guidance, but we understand that we can see at least two. That could be one, could be three. Who knows? Um, but by the end of the year, um, how will that future administrative guidance be incorporated into German law? Do you anticipate that they will add that um, as part of this process? I'm guessing not, because you have to have kind of final law to then go through your parliamentary and your state process that you described. It's a great question. It's a really great question. And I think the answer is we don't know explicit because I don't have I have not heard any kind of public statements around that. I can tell you what my kind of expectation is. So we're seeing now the current drafting already that not all the guidance that has been issued already um, over the last weeks and months basically have been included so far. And we can talk about this also in yeah. a minute if you're interested as well. Yeah, maybe one noted is the allocation of the blended right. CFC regime at right. Guilty. So right. we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit later, yes. but as a hook for our listeners to stay sure. tuned because that was one glaring omission that, that I certainly noticed as a U.S. advisor. It's a cliffhanger. Yeah, okay. no, it's exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, so, so this is something it just tells you, this is going to, my expectation, this is going to be an ongoing process, basically. So we'll have new guidance coming, needs to be included. I expect also in the, in the parliamentary process that you will actually, when you have new guidance, you have the possibility to include this as well. So okay. I think there's going to be constant change. However, we need to also acknowledge at some point in time, if a parliament decides on something, it might not even be easy in the political process to even include new items. So at some point in time, it could be that they're saying that like, whatever comes out now in the process, 
won't make it into this law. And then we have to new, wait for a new law. So, so I expect, and that's not uncommon, that right. you have constant tweaking of those rules, as sure. we usually see. If there's any kind of changes, you have a new set of rules which might cover something totally else. We might just talk about any kind of tax law covering other items. And it's not uncommon under, uh, under German practice that then you're saying, okay, for those pillar two rules, the following five items actually have been, you know, have been changed, we have got new guidance, we need to include this as well. And that's what I would expect to have actually happening here. I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm gonna <laughs> ask it anyway. I'm not, uh, uh, we don't need to get into an in-depth discussion on German constitutional law, but I, I assume it's not possible under German constitutional law to, for, the, for the legislation to make reference to future OECD administrative guidance and sort of automatically incorporate that into German law. Is so, that fair? So, so the answer is yes. That's what I would say. We have also a principle. It needs to be really clearly stated. It needs to be also passed by the parliament. Yeah. So, so it's, that's what you're referencing on. Right. Having said that, we have seen it in other areas where actually they made use of the technique. In this instance, I would not accept that basically because it's more when the German when the German legislator uses technique, which, which, as I said, has questions about constitutional kind of limitations. It's more a matter about what is the definition. So, what is a, a definition of an equivalent IIR regime? For example, that could be right. something which could be an interesting one. They make use of this technique, or the other possibility would have a list just to change it, you know, constantly. But it's more div about definitions, which is just small piece. Yeah. The big set of rules, I would expect it's going to be a constant tweaking basically. And, and to what extent they're going to make use of this technique as of the critique, I also don't know. It, it could be also saying we're just doing, continue doing the tweaking as we do have to do it anyhow. You know? Yeah. And I think that's just going to be a continued challenge for taxpayers and advisors sure. is that depending what the legislative process is, because I, I, we had Matt Ryan from the UK on the podcast, they will likely have this enacted in July, which right. will be before at least the likely before both sets of administrative guidance um, come out. So where we could just end up with natural differences, which really creates complexity for, sure. for people trying to actually build their calculation engines and try to incorporate some of these various rules. I think that's, that's what we will see. I mean, we've seen it on, a, on another topic, we've seen it on DAC 6. This yeah. is kind of something where we would say it should be even more aligned because there's a directive, it's less complex, and there we've seen a vast of differences as well. The, the, the devil lies in the detail, as we always say. Right. And I think we will see this very much once you start actually working with those rules and really get, get, get down. Then you see that there are nuances which actually, uh, yeah, will be then to be seen how you, how you deal with it. It's going to be a challenge for sure. All right. So implementation dates. I don't think there are any surprise there, but the income no. inclusion rule, under tax profit rule, QDMTT, what are those uh, implementation dates? It, it, it's as foreseen from, as from the OECD. So we're, we're going live 1st of January 24 for the IRR and QDMTT and then 25 for the uh, UTPR basically. So same thing for tax years beginning on or after right. December 31st, or uh, beginning after. December 31st. Uh, actually, you know, you caught me something. Those rules are quite complicated, to be honest with right. you. I think they're deviating a little bit there. So, okay. But, but that's, that's, a, that's, a general, that's a general rule. Okay. And I just want to flesh that out because I've been still asked by everyone, at least in the PwC network, are you going live with the, uh, with the uh, with all set of rules for the 1st of January 24? Okay. And, uh, and the answer is no. So now we're also following basically uh, OECD guidelines and the directive, basically. We're not having early adoption for partially of set of rules. For you, so. in particular, 
Andrew, I think what made a lot of taxpayers and advisors nervous is like, will some, because Korea obviously has gone yeah. out there, we'll see. UTPR. For no. the, for the under tax profit rule, right. kind of a year early. They yeah. seem to be really the only ones at this point that yes. are kind of out there on that. We'll see if that potentially changes. Yes. Yes. Um, but good to know that yeah. Germany is not going to take we're, that we're a year earlier. We're, we're not, we're not. We're having all yeah. UTPR also later on. And by the way, just in terms of semantics for all the German folks, the interesting thing is how we translated those. Because for two years with you, I've been talking about UTPR and IIR, and now we have German names for that, and they're quite lengthy. Okay. And just, you want to know what, this, what UTPR in Germany is? Please. Sekundärergänzungssteuer. Right, I'm so, not going to be pronouncing and, you know, that. You know, I, I mean neither. And the, <laughs> fa the fact is when your brain is wired basically on just remembering these terms, it's really hard not to remember what the UTPR is. So if I'm sometimes hesitating, yeah. that's because in my mind I'm still talking about the Sekundär against the Okay. Well, okay. And, to, and to go back to my interview with Pascal, yeah. I right. did call it the undertax profit rule, and he tried to correct me to say it's the undertax payment rule. There you go. You see, the, it's actually great to see the complexity and confusion on everyone's right? side. Yeah, yeah. yeah I absolutely. think I agree with you. I mean, even he yeah. was like, wait a minute. I'm like, well, there's no payments required. Anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Honestly, that sometimes happens to me as well, to be, to right. be very open. It, it just tells you how, what challenge we're talking about. For sure. Right. All right. So speaking of challenging, let's talk about, let's start with the compliance requirements. Right. Yeah. Um, what did, what, how did, uh, there were a lot of details, in right, the, right, right, not right. surprisingly, in the German draft sure. about compliance. So yeah, maybe yeah. give us the a summary or summary. some of the highlights of the, of the compliance requirements. So we have multiple requirements to do filings. So the first one is the global information return, the GEAR, how we call it actually. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's something which is in the law as well. Uh, and it follows really as we anticipate the OECD guidelines. So basically we have a filing requirement. The filing uh, of this one goes to a central tax agency. So we have a central tax agency basically uh, for, for international matters, and, and this is the one collecting all the gear. And, and the interesting thing is that on the gear, it's uh, in, a t in terms of penalties, it's somewhere in between. So basically, if you do a, a wrong filing, you can get penalties, but it's at a lower level in comparison to other filings I come to in a second. It's at least not criminal matters. You still, there are still penalties, but it's a lower level. So that's kind of yeah. Uh, a decision which they caught is not a tax return, it's only this global information return. Okay. So there are penalties, but they're a little reduced, which I believe is a good news. Having said that, um, there are also other findings. There is a QDMTT, and there is, as we know, the IIR and the UTPR as well. Mm -hmm. These set of rules are normal tax returns. And, and I, have to, I have to add to what's that it's not a tax return as you have in the corporate income tax return, where you just calculate the income, send it over to the tax authorities, they calculate the tax and send it back to you you have to calculate your own tax as well. So it's really the income plus the tax. You need to report the tax to them and then pay it, which might be a bit technical, but it's, it's, it's a different way. Okay. So it's more on the side of the taxpayer as well. And the, in, and the important thing to note is this, so, so it's basically three returns we're talking about. It's the gear, it's the QDMTT, and then it's the IRR, UTPR, if applicable, of course. You mm -hmm. know, if, if we don't have to apply it because we have an IRR somewhere up in the chain in the, in the group, then obviously the later returning is not required. But this l last two returns, the IIR, UTPR, and the QDMTT, these are normal tax returns, which okay. means also the normal penalties, criminal charges, and everything are applicable also as well, which I think is important to note because it tells taxpayers, whatever you put in numbers into it, make sure these are the right numbers, basically. Right. You know? it's, it's, I think we might talk about also about safe harbor rules a little bit. That's now also a, a hot topic in Germany. To what extent can you rely on the CBCR kind of data mm -hmm. in order to basically demonstrate you're, be, you're above the 15%? 
as you imagine, a lot of times in Germany, especially for German entities, people might expect we are over 15% mm -hmm. for sure. Having said that, there are deviations. So, you know, it might look you're above 15. Most cases, you, you, might, you probably will be end up, but there might be certain cases where you're below. How do you make sure that, that you're not falling under it? And more importantly, on the CBCR reporting, how can you rely on the CBCR data? Because right. is it qualifying? Was there any detail about what is qualifying or? Did you yeah, really there is. There is qualification in terms of what is a reporting standard. That's the one thing. Okay. But I think even more important, they also made it quite clear they're going to have a very thorough check on the CPCR data. So, which anyhow we would have said sure. you should do anyhow. So you, if you have the CPCR data and so far maybe it has not not the most efforts have been put in basically to see are they correct. I think now is the time to refresh and to have a look. Does it make sense to, to basically invest into that? Just to basically later demonstrate that you really have a proper sure. set of rules. If no, they can waive it. So that means they're checking it and they can okay. say if it's not correct, then basically your CBCR reporting will be not valid and your CBCR exemption will be not valid. So this is something which, which there is some, some yeah, guidance on that as well. And I think the big message for everyone out there is if you want to rely on it, you need to spend some time and efforts and just make up your mind how you can demonstrate whatever is included there is accurate because that's something you will see being checked. Basically. No, that's good advice. I think we're going to see that around the world for, Fraud, for these, course, these safe harbors. One follow-up question on the Globe Information Return because as, as I know, you read that document carefully that the OECD provided. In, in my view, it was really a list of data points. And I mean, they right. even acknowledged that. And they, yeah. um, in the preamble, they, the OECD even acknowledged that, you know, various, you know, countries could de determine really what they want their compliance requirements to be. And so it seems that Germany's made reference to the Globe Information Return as a filing requirement, yet I'm not really convinced that that was actually a form or a filing requirement. Right. Um, how do you see, I'm, I'm hopefully in, in the later administrative guidance, we might actually get a form or get a little bit more detail. Right. But how do you see that playing out in Germany on this globe information return? It's an interesting one. So how it works in Germany is usually you have a set of laws where certain data points which are collected are also defined. But really what it comes down to, I think they might even have an own department just working on the way how you fill out the forms basically. Okay. Those people will, in the end, the ones who are really defining what's going to be included. My expectation is still it's going to be a very granular list of different data points which you basically have to report because how on earth can you otherwise check, basically? Yeah. And also, actually, the interesting thing is, from a global perspective, you probably need that as well because if you have just a condensed set of data points, how can you even reconcile this, basically, internationally? Yeah, and I think the concern that um, you know I've certainly heard from, from taxpayers is that it ends up providing a lot of information. Absolutely. Um, that could be very sensitive financial information when you get to that level, granular level of detail. And so I know that's a, a concern for, for a number of taxpayers. Yeah. But I think we're past that concern. The decision has been made, yeah, I believe. Fair enough. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, let's move on to, to the QD. I wanted to ask about the QDMTT because um, the, the EU directive was really not prescriptive on what was required for a qualified domestic minimum top-up tax, really focused on the income inclusion rule and the under-tax profit rule. How was that addressed in Germany? Did they really just kind of take the model rules and commentary or any significant notes on the QDMTT in Germany? So the QDMTT itself is just really, they say, 
take whatever is being determined as income under the IIR and UTPR rules, and that's what you apply for the okay. QDMT. So this is just really uh, copy-pasting, basically. I think there is still a few details, not in terms of the German QDMTT, but that's something I want to flesh out there. But when you expect a foreign QDMT to be basically equivalent and falling under the safe harbors. So this is kind of interesting to what extent does it need to be IRS or, or, or does it need to be local kind of uh, accounting gap. So that's something where they have a little bit of, of coverage there. It's actually not really fleshed out, but there is a little bit of more details basically that basically can't be just, just anything. Yeah. Um, but, but other than that, it's really just a copy-paste. So I would anticipate if you basically determine your income basically for an IIR on the QDMT, they should be very much aligned. And then obviously there's a few glitches in between which we should probably not talk about here, but the mainly they're reconciled from. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really interested to see as this plays out around the globe, if any policymakers make the intentional decision to, to tweak the, the QDMTT. I think, you know what, I mean, this is pure speculation on my totally. side, but I think at this point in time, everyone is quite happy to have a rules, set of rules which work. But I mean, once you have that, and it's in the hand of the policymakers, you might consider to change it for whatever reasons, actually. Right. So I mean, my, I, I, I hear you, and I would not disagree, but I think we're gonna, if, so this is gonna be politically decided, this is gonna be there, we're gonna work with this for, for the next sure. years. So, and once in the hand of everyone, everyone will start to work with that. And then I think later on it's going to be interesting to what extent then also those differences you're alluding to might simply arise. But at this stage, I think it's, we're still quite early, and that's my impression is so far, whoever drafted the set of rules was saying like, happy that we got this done, let's just reference yeah, back to your it. Your point <laughs> is, well, this is already so complex, right. I think, for policymakers to get their heads around. And I, I think it's a really good observation that because the QDMTD does feel like it's a dial or lever that potential policymakers could potentially move. Right. Now, obviously, they need to be mindful if that falls below and then somebody else has the UTPR yeah. with different that they could end up collecting top-up tax on a QDMTD. That is the tech question. And then that's what I alluded to. To what extent are you on a safe high of our QDMTT rules? Right. So that's going to be if an interesting deviates. one. If it deviates, you're saying like, but we're covered, so you're excluded. But to what extent are you still not crossing the line yet? So that's right. going to be an interesting one, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, some of the deviations from, from the model rules. And right. when I say model rules talk, um, uh, include the, the initial model rules, commentary, as well as the first set of administrative guidance we have. So mm -hmm. um, the first point that I wanted to note was that it did not appear that the administrative guidance has been included. And I guess specifically for me, the allocation of the blended CFC regime Right. Um, that was in the administrative guidance. So particularly for U.S. multinationals where you have a guilty inclusion, there was obviously very prescriptive guidance um, released as part of the administrative guidance on how to push down those guilty taxes. Right. Um, that was not in there. Um, what, what's your comment on that? Is Well, that maybe we just may see that in a later draft, or right. what, do you, what do you think? So, so it's, a, it's a good question. I, I, I'm, to be honest with you, when I read it, I was also quite surprised that this has not been included. And it's a list I'm actually looking here for everyone who looks on YouTube. I look on a, on a list I have here on, on my phone because okay. we just basically have a list here. And it's, it's a long list, actually. You're surprised. And, and there are a bunch of things on it. I'll, I'll just touch on one or two. Uh, maybe as well. So the treatment of debt releases, basically. The question when you have debt releases, to what extent can you in this reorganization suddenly pay minimum tax? Where well, I think it was from the OCD, it was seen that could be a problem. That's not, not in it, which I'm surprised because for us, it's a huge topic and obviously now potentially going to recession mode, I think it becomes even more important. Yeah, and that sure. this is not now included with something where I personally said, which, which, which was quite quite surprising. And then there is also um, other ones, the rebasing of monetary thresholds is very kind of easy ones with the 750 million, technically how this has to be changed, mm -hmm. has not been included so far. 
I personally believe that this is, and uh, don't worry, I come to the CFC one in a second. Yeah. I, I think personally this so far is just a process. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I would be surprised if this later down the road will be not included because I don't see any policy reasons to do that. And, and also looking basically at what you talked about, you know, the blended CFC tax regimes. I, it's not included and it's interesting. You said blended CFC tax regimes. I, I am only aware of one of those in the world. Well, yeah, I think there could be other ones. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you find one and listeners add to the comments. At least the German legislature would never do only something for you of as course, multinational, so, as you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, the, the, the interesting one, I don't think there's a policy rationale behind. Okay. So, I would still expect down the road, and again, that's me purely speculating, but there is not the intention to do something on the side of German legislator, at least what I'm hearing, where they're trying to indicate that a certain tax regime should be excluded. I have not heard that so far. Ask me in six months again right. whether it changes when we see the final tax law. That, that could be something very interesting when we go to a parliament hearing. I mean, so far, it's just one of the list of 50. So sure. therefore, I cannot tell you whether there's a rational behind. Be assured that as we see this list and items getting lost because you know, uh, problems getting ironed out and what are remaining, they get more focal point. And if this one remains, I'm sure this, gonna, this could be something having a, a broader, um, you know, discussion point, to be a broader discussion point, because I understand that's quite important. Of yeah, and as this progresses, obviously we'll bring you back on the podcast to discuss, but it does make me wonder that if Germany or any other jurisdiction doesn't end up bringing in that administrative guidance for whatever reason, is it any reasonable method? Does it mean that no guilty credits yes. can, can get, no guilty taxes can get pushed down? I mean, a lot of questions. And that certainly makes, as, as you think about taxpayers and even advisors building calculation engines, where we have these various deviations between different countries, it makes for a very complicated calculation. Yeah, actually, honestly, this, I don't, I, I think so far, people are probably not aware of that because mm -hmm. everyone just works in their own kind of silo, so to speak. And I think, I mean, as we work in, in PwC, an organization where we see cross borders, we see those deviations. What I'm hearing also, um, you know, uh, let's say in the general tax practice, that mostly everyone is just trying to get their heads around those rules. And then even comparing how it's the different ones is the next level. And that's, I, I think we're not there. And when you, when you talk about now uh, corporations, taxpayers trying to see how we comply with that, Obviously, everyone starts with a standard set of rules. Yeah, model rules, commentary. Exactly. Of course, because you're happy if you manage them, coming back right. to the point. Right. But then, if you want to do the filing, and coming, take, take the German example, and you, let's assume you have to do a local filing, and then your local MD asks you, is this a correct set of rules? And he will get nervous and saying, like, I don't want to have all those penalties. And you're basically saying, like, it could be because they use international rules, but, but I'm not sure to what extent basically all the deviations are there. That's going to be an interesting discussion. And I think that's the next level we're going to talk about down the road. Right. Absolutely. Um, all right. Last question. And then I want to talk a little bit about EU law because right. you wrote a fascinating article that I at least want to spend a few minutes on. But um, there was no, or correct me if I'm wrong, but there was no definition in the German rules of what is an acceptable income inclusion rule. And right. I think... Some of us in the U.S. are probably wrongfully hopeful that maybe some jurisdiction would consider guilty. Right. And even Pascal said that the, the um, guilty was really the first income inclusion rule. Now, obviously, right. significant differences. Right. It's blended. It's on a different tax base. But there was no definition, right, in Germany on what is an IAR. Does right. that give us any hope in the U.S.? No, there's no definition, which is a surprise and also is one of the points we're raising. I mean, just make it more clear basically what this means. But uh, to get to your point, I think we would accept you if you abolish your, your global blending, you know. So I think 
I, I mean, I don't think this has changed to any point, okay. this kind of big discussion to what extent, when is something acceptable. The view which you're hearing, and I'm referencing to a public hearing which was held last year in November uh, in the Ministry of Finance to the public, where, where I was also invited um, uh, uh, to, to, to talk to uh, uh, on a panel. I think it was quite clear that the, the view um, of the uh, German government and also, frankly, from the OECD, some participants of the ECB were also at, at the seminar, is still that it has been agreed there's no global blending, and that's, I think, still the expectation. How this will resolve, and again, referencing to, to your and our, and, and our podcast with, with uh, uh, Pascal, I think this topic is still unresolved. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And, and to remind listeners, particularly for outside the U.S., the likelihood of us, uh, of the U.S. implementing a, moving away from a blended and having a country by country guilty is virtually no. We've got the divided Congress yeah. in the U.S., so I think over the next two years, the likelihood of that is, is nil. We, uh, st we uh, still think in two or three years, you're going to come back to what you signed on. That's our hope. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it is interesting because, yeah. you know, the Biden administration proposed really adoption of kind of the full-blown income inclusion rules. So, um, and then also the, the UTPR and the repeal of B. Now, again, that was the president's proposal. It's not going anywhere because we have a Republican-controlled House. Um, but you do wonder, can that be a framework that a future administration, it may not even necessarily be a Democratic administra Democrat administration sure. that could kind of take that off the shelf, make some tweaks. So I, I think you would expect at some point in time that will be resolved. I think because of the dynamics you just mentioned about the political situation in the U.S. and, and you know, what has been agreed in OECD at this point in time for the next one or two years, probably won't. It will be interesting what happens afterwards. I, you know? I can, cannot make any predictions on the U.S. political process of what may yeah. happen, but we'll, we'll certainly see. Right. All right. So last topic here. Um, want to talk about Pillar 2 validity under EU law. Right. So the Pillar 2 directive includes in Article 49 a so-called initial phase of exclusion from the income inclusion rule and under tax profit rule of M&E groups and large-scale domestic groups. So this rule exempts MNEs with a small cross-border footprint from the UTPR for a five-year period. And I think the goal of that, Arnie Wright, is to not discourage the development of cross-border activities by initially purely domestic enterprises that benefit from low tax in their, in their, in their jurisdiction, in their home jurisdiction. So you wrote a fascinating article with George Koffler on does this initial phase relief make the EU Pillar 2's directive invalid? So maybe if you could just, uh, and we'll include a reference to, to the article in the show notes for the podcast, yeah. but uh, what is the general premise of the article? And practically speaking, do, yeah. do you really see this going anywhere? Yeah, actually, that's, that's a very interesting one. And I, I think for all the listeners out there, Doug was so nice to say, usually we do 30 minutes podcast. This is going to be a 90 minute one because <laughs> the last 60 minutes is on European law. Yeah, this no, is I'm, a complicated topic. I, I, I'm just kidding. I, I, I'm actually, my, I, my PhD is on European law. That's, I would like to talk about 60 minutes, but don't, don't worry, I, I won't, I won't. <laughs> All right. Um, no, I think it's an interesting one. And, and uh, so Georg Kofler, who is from Vienna University, a very dear friend, and, and I think one of the brightest EU lawyers which we have in the, in the, in the German-speaking uh, um, yeah, uh, territories, um, we, we actually talked about this rule which you just alluded to. And, it, and I'm trying to make this very simple for everyone out who's not into European law. So Thank you. For the, first years, <laughs> for the first years, you have to comply with these rules if you're a multinational exceeding 750 million and you have a large domestic footprint. If you're just working domestically, you don't. And if you're still in the initial phase for the first years, you also don't. The question is why. You know, I think 
how this was included is the OCD originally had for third countries this exemption being applied and as I understand maybe there was a view we want to have an equal treatment on the European kind of system and they kind of copied it over and, and, and I think it, it triggers the question why do you give the first years every time you either working domestically or predominant domestically why do you basically make an exemption and also it for the ones with who only have um, the small footprint, it only applies domestically. So every time you, for those ones with foreign PE under the directive, you have to apply the IIR. So I think it's really quite clear under the directive that cross-border situations are different treated. And the question is why? So and, and, and the interesting thing is also under the German tax law, somehow maybe they read the article before, I don't know, they are tweaking on that because they now exclude those ones who are having a, a smaller footprint in total, excluding their foreign PEs and foreign subsidiaries as well. So, so you see that different treatment between domestic and cross-border situation is already softened a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Georg and I, for all the German listeners, we're anticipating to have an article in the German magazine seeing whether it fixes the problem. But is it I, a fundamental freedom? Is it's that fundamental freedom. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I missed that. Yeah. So basically, for everyone out there is uh, under European law, you need to always, you know, compare what is the treatment in a purely domestic situation and what's in a cross-border situation. That's the easy test, so to speak. Kind of like, I'm going to overly simplify, but yeah. kind of the non-discrimination. Non-discrimination. And honestly, it's not an, It's exactly what it is. It's not yeah. oversimplifying. It's, okay. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of nuances, right. basically. But that's the plain test, basically. And, and I think the question was put out there to what extent even why do you need those rules applied domestically, you know? There, was a, there were some, some scholars who were saying it wasn't even required to do it to be in line with European law. The interesting thing is the European legislator decided to make it really proof, we make it applicable for domestic situations as well. Mm -hmm. And I personally believe to make it comply, it was probably a wise decision because it would have been already a question right. if certain things are out of scope already. You need to at least explain this away. Now it's being set up a different. But for the first years, they took this, what well, we talked about, this exemption. And yeah. the question comes up, is this okay? And, and why is this relevant? It's relevant because Georg and I, the question comes up, what does this mean? Is a directive suddenly not in line with the fundamental freedoms? We believe the answer is no because the threshold is quite high. Mm -hmm. But what it still means, you have the possibility for the member states to include um, a QDMTT, and that would fix it if you basically do it and for you would basically treat everyone the same, meaning like applying mm -hmm. the IIR. That would fix it. And there is also jurisprudence stating if there's an option to include a rule and the QDMT is included as an option and member states don't do it, this then makes a whole set of rules potentially um, not aligned with fundamental freedoms and the outcome would be you don't have to pay the tax. So if you follow this reasoning, it would mean for the first years all the multinationals, at least for the European subs, wouldn't pay their tax. That wouldn't save us with regard to third countries. Also, mm -hmm. to be clear, so any kind of foreign subsidies wouldn't help you. On the UTPR one, if we would levy any kind of tax from a US parent entity, would also not help us because this is out of scope, right. basically. So I think for all the people out there who are practically working with those rules, I don't want to get all the wrong message that you don't have to focus right. on those rules. Yeah, yeah. But I think it makes it interesting because it brings a lot of pressure on it. And uh, if, if this is true, obviously that's to be decided by the European Court. It's just right. a view of Georg. Which will be years from now. Which will be years from now. Because <laughs> right. you, have to have, you have to first file your tax return because you need to comply with the rules. Right. Then you get assessment notice. Then you go to the lower court. So this is going to be decided in 10, 15 years. Probably we're not going to retire. So that's going to be a nice retirement gift. Yeah, we'll it? see. We'll keep, we can track this on our retirement. Right. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Right. But well, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. It really is an interesting yeah. point. Again, we'll include a link in the, in the show notes to, right. to the article encourage our listeners that are interested in EU law to check that out. So, yeah. Arnie, thank you very much for, for coming on. 
Um, look forward to continuing to, to follow the progress of the German Pillar 2 rules and certainly yeah. look forward to having you back on when we get some more clarity as we yeah. get closer to actual enactment. Great. And Jack, we want to have you on all podcasts as well when you actually, at least when you abolish your, your blending, you know, we, we should talk about this. I, I, well, I hope to maybe come on again. <laughs> maybe earlier. Or maybe a little earlier yeah. than that because okay. I might be retired by now. I, I, I don't know. All right. right. Well, thanks again, Arnie. Great, thanks. Yeah. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Arnie Schnitger, PwC German International Tax Partner. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.